is Sarah Devonay, and this is the Faith is Not Blind podcast. This is actually one of our flagship episodes. And for this episode, I thought it would be interesting to interview someone that I know quite well. And it's my husband, Eric Devonay. For this podcast, we want to explore issues about faith and about questions, about doubt. And Eric, let me just ask you to introduce yourself in terms of what's your background with the church, with your testimony, and sort of related to your childhood. Um, well, I was born in Connecticut, and um, my father was uh, a member of the church. Um, when I was born, he was uh, less active. Um, and then my mother was uh, Catholic when I was born. And so we were um, kind of raised that way. It was a department member family and, uh, for, for quite a while. And then my dad, um, around the time that I was about four or five, was wanting to, to come back to church. I have an older sister. Um, and she was, so she would have been about eight or so, so around a little bit before her baptism age. And so we started to go back to church. Um, my mom uh, took a few missionary discussions, and, and so, so we went, went to church and um, you know, started to get back into church that way. My grandparents had been, had been active members of the church. They joined the church uh, over in Belgium, and um, they had immigrated to the United States in like 1950, 1952. And um, so, yeah, we, we were there just growing up. Um, we were in the, the Newtown Ward in, in southwestern Connecticut. And um, so a lot of my early memories are of that ward. So I remember quite vividly, um, we used to meet in what would be my future junior high. <laughs> so I remember uh, our little branch um, met in the, in the choir room. And, uh, and so we met there and at that time, uh, if you wanted to have a church building, you had to have the land and you have to, um, you know, had to get enough money to build the building. And so uh, our ward would sell fudge and they would sell fudge at the, the Danbury Fair. And that's how they raised enough money and they had donations too. And, but I remember um, that we built that chapel in, in Connecticut. Um, we were donated, somebody um, donated some land and then we built the chapel there. So I do have a lot of early memories of that. Uh, of that ward growing up and um, some of the people there that were um, just fantastic people. And what I think is interesting about that is you, you have a foundation in the church, but not in the same way maybe that I would or a lot of people would where you had the sort of basic structural foundation in your home with family home evening and with scripture study and other things like that, but you had the literal and figurative foundation of that chapel that that you watched people yeah. build at at what point did you realize that there was something like a testimony growing especially because as your wife i know your background you wouldn't have talked about it as a testimony in your home right yeah so what i remember early on um I mean, I, I, I think my, my first experience, I mean, if, if, I can, if I can articulate it this way, is um, 
I, I just remember, if I can say this, the, the sense of God, the, the, the idea that there was someone there. And I could feel, um, to some extent, you know, his presence or concern for me. Um, and I felt that when I was really young. I can remember. I remember we had, um, it was a Bible stories uh, record player. Like, well, it was a record player, but we had a record. and It was a Bible stories thing. And I remember reading through it, and, and it was almost like a comic book. And so they had these little um, little comics. You know, had like the little windows about all the stories. And I remember you'd play the record, and it would just talk about the different stories. And there was just something about it that... Um, I don't know that it, 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 I guess it spoke to me and I realized that there was something there and it was that growth of that feeling of, of the presence of something, something bigger than, than what I could see. And it was connected, um, to that ward building and, and to my experience in the church. And so, so what's kind of interesting is that that sense, that presence of God, I think came before that sort of recognition of, oh, it happens when I'm here right. or, or when I'm with these people, like my grandparents who are, who are wonderful um, and like some of the, the ward members, you know, the, the Duncans and um, a lot of the, the old members of the Newtown Ward, Proudfoot. Um, I, I felt some, that same feeling. I felt it there so among was, those people. There was sort of a foundation of feeling something like God's presence, even yeah. though maybe you weren't completely aware of what that was. Right. Will you share a little bit about what happened in your childhood that may have caused a sort of rift in that spirit or that connection? Well, yeah, the, um, yeah, things were um, things were difficult. Uh, for my parents, you know, in a lot of part member families. And so my mother was interested in the church. Um, she was baptized and was a member for a short time. And things um, didn't go well, um, both in terms of my parents' marriage and also my mother's membership. And so um, my parents were divorced and then my mother had her name taken off the records of the church. And I don't know completely what all of those struggles were about. So I'm probably about eight or nine around this time period. And I mean, I knew they were there, but I, I don't know if I was old enough and mature enough to really understand all of the issues. And, and so, so that was a challenge. And so she, she didn't want anything to do with the church anymore. I remember that quite vividly. Um, my dad would come and so he was living somewhere else and he would come and pick us up, take us to mutual. And, and so, so that was good. I mean, there's still that connection to the ward building, but it was also, um, I don't know, th things were, were difficult, right? L life became difficult. Well, and even more complicated than that was what happened to your mom. Oh, right, right. And then, so, so soon after that, right? So, so my parents are divorced um, and my mother, you know, she was, she was struggling um, in a lot of different ways. And, um, and then, um, so I am 11, so I think it was 1987, um, she, she and I, uh, we were going to get some food for dinner and we were hit by, um, by a drunk driver and then she was killed. And, and when, you, when you consider that, when I hear that story 
for me, I think, I know where you ended up. I mean, it's like a good novel. So you teach English, you teach literature, so do I. And you say, this is the climax of the novel. How in the world is that going to have a happy ending? So knowing what happened to you and that complete tragic moment, what happened to sort of, it's a sort of prodigal son moment that needed to happen, but yeah. you hadn't caused it to happen. You hadn't left your home. Your, ho- your home had sort of left you. What brought you to yourself? Well, you know, and, and this is the thing that, that I'm glad that we get to talk about because, you know, you, you, you talk about, you know, you're referencing the prodigal son and, and this idea that he comes to himself and, and we read it in a parable and it, and it feels so quick right? That, that we go from verse yeah. to verse. And, and so his, his narrative arc is really fast, right? Uh, mine wasn't, right? I mean, it, it, took, it took like a decade, you know? And I think, um, I think what was hard, uh, I remember quite vividly, I mean, I was, I, I survived the accident, but I was cut up, you know, really bad. And um, well, I so mean, physically yeah, and just, just emotionally, lots, yeah. lots of stitches, um, but I, I remember um, one of the, the difficult parts of that experience is, um, and, and maybe, you know, I'm, I'm, this has been helpful, I think, dealing with students and talking to people who have been in, in similar places, but, um, you know, you, you walk into the mirror, I mean, sorry, uh, you walk into the bathroom uh, of the hospital when I, was, when I could finally get up and walk, and you see your face in the mirror, and you start thinking about that presence. And, and you start wondering, well, where is that presence now? And it, and it did feel in that moment that the presence was gone. The, the presence of God. The presence of God, yeah. So what, what brought it back? Do you, do you remember a moment when you felt like Either I think it's coming back or it might come back. I, and, and I like how you said in, in most real stories right. that aren't parables, it isn't like a light that just right. switches back on. And, and I think that's important, right? And that, that's that point about the prodigal son. It's not like you, you, know, it's not like you, you, you brush that off. I mean, when I, when I said a decade, I mean a decade, right? I mean, just 10 years of, of feeling like you had been abandoned. And... Uh, but it wasn't, I mean, it wasn't all bad. And, 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 and I hope that, you know, in, in talking to other people that have experienced similar things, I mean, I think, I think this is kind of similar, but um, that you feel it in bits and pieces. So I have my, my grandparents uh, who were Mormon, and then I have my grandparents who are Catholic. And, um, you know, their devotion to God in both sets were, was, was just, just wonderful. They, they were um, just marvelous people. Um, and, and my dad and my sister are, of course, wonderful, and you, and you have that family. So there are, there are bits and pieces, you know. I, I remember a quote, if, if I can say this, from C.S. Lewis. Um, C.S. Lewis had his mother die at 10, and he wrote a book called uh, Surprised by Joy, I think. Yeah. The first chapter, he talks about his mother's death. And the very last part of that chapter, he says something really wonderful, and I think it captures what it's like to have a mom die when you're, when you're that age, that kind of pre-adolescent age where you're old enough to know but but not really old enough to figure things out well he said um, about his mother's death he said the um, 
uh, he talked about it like um, Atlantis. That's what he compared it to. And he said, <clears throat> he said that uh, it was all sea and islands now. The great continent had sunk like Atlantis. And that's how it felt. That was the predominant feeling. Um, but like I said, there, there were bits and pieces of things that were, that were beautiful and transcendent. But it wasn't until, to, to finish the question, so I, I go off to college, I go to the University of New Hampshire, um, and, and I, I study there, I'm majoring in English. And uh, I, I go to the Cambridge Student Ward in Boston, that's where my sister was going to church. And so I, I drive down from New Hampshire to visit her. It's not, not all that far away. It's about 45 minutes. And, and to be honest, the story picks up again um, with, I'm sitting in, a, in, the, in the church meeting, and the bishop says, he, <clears throat> he says, any of you who are thinking of leaving on your mission in, in the next few months, uh, raise your hand. And, and I'm, I, I swear I'm not being melodramatic, but I'm sitting there, and, and I look over and my arm's up. And I'm going, oh, <laughs> you know, like, uh. <laughs> like it just, it was like one of those moments. And it was that moment from then on, I began to feel the pull towards that presence. I began to feel, I don't know quite how to say this, but, but that someone was watching me. Yeah. And, and, um, and that someone was concerned and that they were, <clears throat> They were pulling me towards them. And, and then, you know, so it just happened, just months, just thinking about it, um, got in touch with the, the bishop, um, you know, withdrew from the university and was like, well, I guess I'm doing this. <laughs> and, and I did it and, and just kind of threw myself into this sort of pull that was yeah. happening. And I, I want to take a minute because, again, if, the, yeah. if this were a chapter in a book, I'd need to stare at this page for a minute and say, Okay, yeah, wait, right. wait a minute. How is this happening? And how is our protagonist actually following what this is? So how, d how did you know what it is? And how would you describe why you followed it? Because if we're talking about how faith isn't blind, was it just these emotions pulling you? How, how would you describe how it felt uh, and why you followed it? I think it's because I recognized it. From when you were a child? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, it was, and and and, oh, I, and and of course, I mean, it, it takes reasoning and, and and experience and and all those kinds of things. But at the same time, it felt like an irresistible pull. And and in, in all of the best ways, I don't know, you know, I don't know how to say something irresistible is great, right? I mean, it feels <laughs> like you're. You know, you don't have control. I did have control, and I knew it. But there was also something that wouldn't leave me alone. That I could, I could feel it. And, um, and I don't know. It just felt like it was time um, to be somewhere else. And, and that this is where I was supposed to be. And, and, and it just, it, it harkens back to that early presence that I felt as a child. And, and I knew that that's what that was. So once you followed it, when did you realize there would probably be 
I mean, I, we, we would want to believe that you could just follow it and things would be easy and you would have your happily ever after. But on your mission, do you remember a time when you encountered uncertainty and difficulty and had to confront what the consequences of that miraculous experience would yeah, be? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it, it, it's hard because there are lots of those moments, Well, the, right? bit, the bits and pieces, the like bits you and said, yeah. But, but there were bits and pieces that were difficult and there, there were, you know, just praying in the MCC and feeling the spirit about the Book of Mormon, about the Prophet Joseph, and, and I could feel um, those things. And, and then I think, you know, as every missionary sort of encounters, you think, okay, I've got this message, I can feel this, this is where I'm supposed to be. And you get there and you say something in French and, you know, um, they don't want to listen to you or they don't understand you or, or any of those things. And so that was a, a, a constant difficulty was, um, was here's this message, here are these things, I feel like this is important, but nothing I'm doing is working. And, and that's a little bit of an overstatement, um, of course, uh, but, but it wasn't as successful as, as one would hope. You know, successful if you want to define success by baptisms. And, and so there was a lot of that going on. That, that was difficult. And then um, I ended up having uh, an emergency surgery uh, on my mission. And Well, and I, again, if I didn't know about it, I, I would think that it's just not fair. That's too much opposition uh, for one person, which I, I remember well. I did think. <laughs> but but how, how did you deal with that? Especially because you had relatively little experience in the church, relatively little right. experience with the Spirit. What kept you there instead of just running back home to Connecticut. Yeah, well, I mean, it's, it was the same thing. I remember it quite vividly, um, just terrified, right? Emergency surgery is probably never fun, um, but in a different language, it's harder. And um, I just remember my mission president coming in to talk to me, and he just said, look, I don't want to send you home for this. And which was great. I mean, you know, he was always going to tell me what he thought, which I really appreciated. And I thought in my head, here's my moment, right? The, the, the get out of jail free card that, <laughs> that no one would blame me for, right? And, um, but there was something about being in the hospital again. Um, that was the, you know, I hadn't been in the hospital since the accident. And there was something about being there And I, I think I felt like it was time um, for me to choose to sacrifice and to say, um, I'm going to do this. And I, I've got the chance to go, but I won't. Because I think I had felt those stirrings of God's love. And I think I wanted to say um, to God that, that this is what I'm willing to do. And, and that moment, and, and this is what happened on, the, on that moment. So I have the surgery, everything's fine. And then because of my surgery, I have to rehab at the mission president's home. And then they put me in the office and they put me in the office with some of the best elders. I can, I mean, just some of the best people. And it was being with them that changed my entire life. And I think it taught me something about trusting in God because I was with them and, and what, what I felt like I learned from them was how to be me and how to be a member of the church. Because I always kind of felt like a square peg in a round hole. 
you know, a little bit with the church. You know, not our, our family was different. Um, we, we did things uh, maybe a little bit differently than than I think the families in you know the the Mormon commercials would do things. You know, right? Um, and and so it was always a little bit of well, I, you know, do I have to be somebody entirely different than who I was growing up? Well, and I think a lot of people feel like that. Yeah, like I think so. Well, in in the book. Faith is not blind. Yeah. I, I have to be a, this ideal, whatever right. that means. Right. If from the Mormon ads, and if right. I'm not that, somehow I can't. Right. And and to be the ideal as a you know a Connecticut Yankee with a part member family who who grew up around more Catholics than he did Mormons, you, you always feel sort of on the outside, and so always felt like anytime anybody would say anything negative about the Catholics, like at the MTC or. I mean, one of the elders, right? Um, you know, I just lose my cool B- because you're always, you know, seeing things differently. But, but getting back to that experience and, and getting back to that trust in God, I go, I, I elect to have that surgery in France, and it opens up, and suddenly I'm, I'm going, oh, I can be me in the gospel, and I have these wonderful friends. I mean, they were just fantastic, and we loved the work, we loved each other. We had a lot of fun in, a, in, a, in an otherwise, you know, to be, to be honest, difficult circumstance. Southwestern France, I mean, it just wasn't, it wasn't easy. Um, but I loved those men like brothers. And it meant a lot to me. And, and what it did is it ended up um, teaching me something about that trust in God yeah. and trusting in that presence that I feel like has been with me ever since I was little. And I, we've talked a lot about foundations and, and so that foundational experience, which was, I mean, it was an upheaval in so many ways, yeah. but it laid the foundation for you to come home and to live the rest of your life. How did that experience on your mission help to shape who you are now? Um, I think my level of trust was, was high enough that I felt, I, I didn't feel fear or apprehension or um, feeling like God was going to harm me or that something was going to happen. Um, and, and so it, it provided, and it really comes down to that level of trust where I was like, oh, this is how this works. That when we, when we choose to sacrifice for God, um, and I don't quite know how to say this, um, but when we choose to sacrifice to him, he blesses us for that sacrifice. And it's not to say that I did things for blessings, and it's not to say that we're blessed in ways that we, you know, that we always know or see, but that that's the trust that we need to have in him. And, 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 and now I feel like, you know, years later after my mission, I sacrifice only now out of gratitude. Because I have been... I've been blessed with so much that um, I, I feel like I have to sacrifice and sacrifice because um, to try to make up for everything he's given me. And I think it was this kind of moment. I think sacrifice is really a, a kind of way to cleanse your perception of what's happening. It allows you to, to let go of some of the things that you think that you need and trust in him. And I think that's why it exists. And how do you just on a day-to-day basis maintain that feeling of sacrifice with if you break down the word 
sacrifice, sacré, making something holy, how, how do you still do that now? So we have seven kids yeah. and a busy life. You're teaching students. What, what does that look like now? I think, you know, um, a lot of it has to do with the reason. It has to do with the motivation, right? The reason why I do things. Um, that, that, that those interactions with our children or those interactions with students, I mean, it's part of the reason why I'm an English professor, is I feel like English and, and, and stories, narrative, and language, that they have given me things that have helped me, not only professionally, right, um, but, but also spiritually. And so uh, what I try to do in, in my classes um, is try to think about what's my motivation for teaching these students. And a lot of it is what I want to give them that can help them later in their lives. And I think about that with our own children, with, with all of that, just that, that motivation to want to help people to not be where I was um, and, and to try to, to give them things that can, tools and, and ideas um, that, that can help them in their future, can help them with their relationship with God. And that's a way that I, I sacrifice and it's a way that I honor the things that uh, honor him because of the things he's given me. And one of the reasons that I love your story and that I thought this is one of the first stories I want to tell is because, well, obviously I love you and your story, but it's not an ideal story. It's not an easy story, but it's a story that recognizes the value of just placing God in our story and where it goes. Maybe the last question I could ask is, what, what would you say to people who might feel like their story is broken and they don't know how to keep going or they don't know how to get that ideal story? I know you talk about it a lot with your students. What, what, what's the main thing that we could end on? Yeah, it, you know, it, it's interesting as you, you were talking about that and talking about people that, that feel broken or their stories feel broken. I mean, it maybe explains in some ways uh, my love of 20th century American literature, right? Which is <laughs> in the modernist and postmodernist tradition, not well known for its neat and tidy right. plots, right? Uh, open-ended endings, um, right. my, lots my, of questions. My students, if we read any of those stories, always say, why do we have to read such depressing stories? Right. And, and your story could be viewed that right. way. Oh, what a depressing story. But you don't see it that way. No. Why not? Well, because there, there's... I, I think there's a, and, and maybe, you know, I hadn't, I hadn't thought about these two things being together, but, but that interpretive process is, and in, in, in 20th century American literature, for example, um, you know, you read a story and sometimes my students are like, what just happened, right? There's, right. there's no meaning, there's no, there's no, you know, and thus we see at the end of it. And I think that's the, the moment where we can apply our interpretive skills to say, okay, so out of this experience, what could we learn from it? And, and I think, you know, you, you can see maybe a little bit of a, of a biographical right, connection to those stories. My students are always a little bit, why do you like stories like this? And um, I always tell them it's because they're all really good. But I also know there's a biographical, right? I mean, that, that's how I lived um, for half of my life or more. But, but so one of the things, but I think it's a, it's a great skill to say here is 
this story. Here is this thing that we see happening. And we need to, to ask ourselves the question, what could this mean? Well, because so often, as a, as a student, as a reader of our own story or other people's right. stories, you want to say, tell me what it means, or even in the temple, right. tell me exactly what this means. Right. Why do you think that that's a better question? Yeah, and, and I think too, so I actually say this to my students, is, is I tell them that what does it mean is the wrong question, which shocks them. And, and then I say the better question is what could it mean? Because what could it mean, uh, I think, suggests that there are possibilities. And so the question becomes that we need to figure out, well, what are those possibilities? And out of those possibilities, which interpretation is best? And right. in, in literature, you know, we talk about textual evidence, we, you know, we talk about form and content and, and all those types of things. Um, but I think there's something to be said about that question when it comes to faith. And, and especially when it comes to faith and perplexing experiences that we have. Experiences um, that are downright brutal, right? I mean, my, my mother's story doesn't have um, some neat and tidy ending to it. And, and I think about this, now I'm, I'm 43, my mother died at 38. And so I'm five years older than she ever was. And I keep thinking she never got a chance um, to revise her story. Mm. And, and I think, you know, you, you look back on that and, and you think, wow, there's this, there's this kind of what lack of a denouement, a lack of resolution to her story. But that being said, you can still go back in an experience like that, with a life like that, and ask the question, well, what could it mean? When I like that because it not only gives sort of analytical depth, but potential. Right. What could it mean in the future? Right. Well, and, and isn't that right? That's what Christ's redemption does to all of our stories, yeah. is it gives us that potential in the future of, of, of the kind of ending that we would like, right? That, that we may not see that kind of ending until way off in the eternities, but Christ's redemption he can redeem us from anything that happens to us in, in our lives, any of the things that interrupt the story. If, if we choose to make him a part of the story. Yeah. Well, and that's what I love so much about your story, and I appreciate you sharing it with me and with whoever gets to listen to it, because I have faith in your happily ever after, because... It's mine too. Because you're it. <laughs> <laughs> so thank yeah. you for sharing and thank you for listening. This was Eric Devenier. I know his name. <laughs> Eric Devenier and this is the Faith is Not Blind podcast. Thanks for joining us. Mm -hmm.